0: All right, if you will take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews and the sixth chapter once more. If you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word as we return to this passage where we have spent so much time already and we pray that God would give us clarity as we continue to examine it. So Hebrews chapter 6 beginning again at verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore to himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For indeed men swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them the end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would grant to us wisdom and understanding. We pray that you would show us truth and that you would give us clarity. But God, in the midst of all these things, we pray that the gospel of Christ would be magnified. We pray, God, that the truth of who you are would be lifted high in our eyes, that we would see it, that we would worship you for the beauty of all that you have done, that we would submit to you, Father, and that our hearts and our minds and our lives would reflect that. And God, I pray that in the midst of this day, you would give us strength and comfort and hope that stands in the midst of trials and difficulties. No matter what is thrown against us, let us stand on the truth of Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. So we spoke last week about an anchor of the soul. We talked about hope that allows us to see beyond the veil. A hope that will sustain us in the midst of the fiery trials of life. And it is true that we need such a hope, for fear is a powerful foe. But in the end, fear is nothing but a toothless lion, as humans, our greatest danger is separation from God, but this has been removed in the sacrifice of Jesus. Understanding that death itself is powerless to harm us, grants us peace and power to endure and to emerge triumphant. So I thought this morning we would talk about this power of fear just a little bit before we move back to discuss what Christ has done in entering the veil, because it is it's important for us to recognize what it is that God has freed us from. So this veil that separated the inner place from the outer place in the sanctuary really was veiling what was unknown. It, it was veiling the presence of God. It was veiling His majesty. It was veiling the, the secret things that belonged to God. And there was a great deal of, of anxiety if you will, around the veil and around what went on. If you recall, when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies with with the blood of the sacrifice, there was bells tied around the bottom of his robe and a rope attached to his ankle. Because if he entered in wrongly and did things in a wrong fashion, he could be struck dead by the presence of God and nobody was going in after him, so the rope was there to drag him out. This was a constant reality. This was a constant awareness that, that there was something beyond the ability for us to understand. And, and the fear that accompanies that that darkness, that, that separation, that unknown, is a very real thing. It is death at its heart. It is separation from God. It is separation from life. It is separation from hope. It is separation from all of these things. And it... it grabs a hold of us, but I want you to recognize the truth that the greatest strength of darkness is its shadow. It is, it is something that is not really there. What power does fear hold after we have experienced what we were afraid of? You ever consider that? Do you think of the worst thing that you've ever been afraid of in your life that you have then faced? On the back side of it, Does fear really have any strength left in it? You you might look back at the experience and say, well, that was terrible, and I never want to do it again. But is it something that you then fear? Not usually. Generally speaking, once we move through something, we no longer fear it. We We may not like it, but we're not afraid of it anymore. Fear loses its power. And on the backside of the experience, the monster is always revealed as a fake no matter what it is that you feared, no matter how big you puffed it up in your mind, once you get through it, you look back at the backside of it and you say, well, that was just a sham. It's a facade. Um, it's, it's, it's fearsome on the front end. It's got teeth and spikes and, and scary things. But on the backside is two little monkeys on a bicycle pushing it down a tunnel. It, it's empty. And, and it's all we need to recognize is that everything that faces us no matter how fearsome it looks to the front, looks exactly like that on the back. Because fear doesn't really have any power. It has no ability to harm us that we do not give it ourselves. We can look back on painful times and know that although they did hurt, the fear that we had on the front end was nowhere near worth what the experience was about. Amen? If we can get our heads around that on the front end, we will recognize that fear itself is empty. It plays on our emotion. It plays on this idea of what is the worst case scenario. My kids used to have a card game they'd play in the car called worst case scenario and, and they, would, they would read these cards, and it was all these terrible things that could happen, and what would you do in this circumstance? And it was kind of funny to listen to their insane sorts of solutions for really strange problems, but, you know, we all play that game with ourselves, don't we? We, we look at things that are coming, we look at situations, we look at circumstances, and we psych ourselves up to what's the worst thing that could possibly happen, and And I believe in being prepared. The Bible says that the fool sees danger ahead and and keeps on. He takes no action. So we need to be prepared. We need to understand that God has given us the ability to use some discernment and use some wisdom to prepare now for trouble ahead. But we need to do that without fear. We need to do that without being worried about it. Because worry and fear incapacitates us. It gets into our lives and it gets into our minds and it it softens our spines and it turns our bowels to jelly and it causes us to be ineffective in doing the things that God has put in front of us to do. Fear really has no power that we ourselves do not give it because it is empty. It uses our imagination against us. And I said that shadow and darkness is fear's greatest weapon, which means that the light of God dispels it the promise of God when we look at the scripture and we look at the word of God and we say this is what God has said it has the power to dispel fear what is man's greatest fear 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 itself we have nothing to fear but fear itself said (laughs) said Churchill and he wasn't wrong but man's greatest fear is death isn't it we don't want to die and certainly we don't want to die in horrible circumstances. And certainly we don't want to die alone. And certainly we don't want to enter into the unknown knowing that what's beyond death is something we might not expect. Well, all of those are concerns that wrap up in the mind of, of the average person. They wrap up in the mind of the lost. They wrapped up in the mind of people who belong only to the world. Because fear is, is the constant companion of their lives. But for us... Should it be so? Does the power of death hold any terror for us? No. We would miss those who are gone, and we do miss those who are gone. And sometimes death brings complications to our day-to-day realities. But fear itself, it holds no place for us in understanding this. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to understand how Paul addresses this question of our fear and death and the power of it and what it is and what it isn't. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're just going to read the last few verses, starting at verse 50. Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And what is Paul telling us here? He's telling us that death, first of all, is a necessity. That exiting this world as flesh and blood and corruption as we are is not possible. Because what is promised to us is glory. It is incorruption. It is the presence of God. And so there has to be some sort of transformation. And for the vast majority of mankind, the transformation is death itself. Now for the few who belong to Christ, who are alive and remain upon the world when Christ returns, they will be transformed without tasting death. But it will be so close to death, the difference is largely theoretical. They will be changed into the very likeness of Christ in the twinkling of an eye. But I want you to pay attention to what he's saying is is gone on in the rest. There is a transformation which is necessary to occur through death. God's promise says death is not only real and not only evident and not only coming for you, but it is necessary and therefore it is good. It has no power to harm us. It's it's a toothless lion. Where is your sting death? It's in the power of the law. And if you're found in Christ, the power of the law has no power over you. The law no longer holds a complaint against you, for Christ has died, and He has paid the debt which your sin incurred. And the scripture promises us that He has been raised up because we have been justified. There is no longer any curse remaining in death. So what comes when we die is a good thing. God promises us that our death, when it comes, will be a blessing to us. If that's his promise, then what have we to fear? If that's his promise, why are we so worried about it? Well, largely because we don't tend to think about the promises of God in the manner that we should. We tend to put them off for another day. The promises of God, they're, they're down the road stuff. they There's they're something for future me. There's something for me to contemplate when this thing arises. But beloved, you have to recognize the truth that this underwriting fear and this underwriting doubt, it, it girds your entire life. This promise has to be the reality of everything that you think. It has to be the bedrock of all of it. Because the very worst thing that the world can do to you is kill you. That's their biggest weapon. They they think canceling you is bigger, but I promise you, it's not. Their biggest weapon is murder. Their biggest weapon is, is killing, and that's what's behind the abortion industry. They're trying to kill people before they're even born, and that's what's in this whole trans industry when they're trying to turn children into something that they're not. They're killing innocence. They're killing children. We need to recognize that death is everything they have. And if we don't recognize it and fight against it because we're scared, then, then what's, what's the point of it? Beloved, this is your power. This, this really is your superpower as a follower of Christ. You, you are immortal until the moment that God has already ordained your life to end. And up until that moment, which you can neither hasten nor delay, you are absolutely immortal. And in that moment, you are triumphant. It has no power to harm you. It has no power to hurt you. It has no power to bring anything into your life that God has not ordained for your good. So what are we afraid of? What is this veil that hides us and that scares us so much? This veil of unknowing, this veil of death, this veil of of separation. It, It is the reality that all inherent danger in anything that God brings into your life has been disarmed by the presence of God. Look at me at Psalm 91. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. Insert whatever name of perilous pestilence you want to. He shall cover you with His feathers And under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. And you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked." Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot, because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high. Because he has known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him, and I will be with him in trouble, and I will deliver him and honor him, and with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, I'm not going to tell you that this means that if you love and honor God, no bad thing will ever come to you, because Jesus told us exactly the opposite. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But I am going to clarify for you the reality that if you love and honor God, nothing that the world counts as bad can actually harm you. It can't change anything that is you. It can't hurt you in any way that matters. The the, the truth of the scripture is that God has disarmed these things. And that the only one that we need fear is God himself. The only one that we need to reverence with this kind of fear is God. And in the end, we need to recognize that what God promises us is that when we honor him and love him, that thing which we feared, that that thing which is terrible, that thing which comes to us in the night, which we've been so afraid of, is actually transformed into blessing. Now you have to get through it to see that. But it's truth. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28. We know this passage. We know this truth. But it's worth hearing in the context of this conversation. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. This is because Christ has entered the veil for us. So what is the picture in the veil? It is the veil of the temple. We spoke briefly about it last week. A a piece of fabric woven, according to some historians, over a foot thick. A heavy veil, measuring 30 feet across and 30 feet long, because the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, was a cube, And the veil covered the entire side of the cube. It it filled the opening. It was more substantial than the walls itself. And the priest would enter behind the veil. Well, when Christ died on the cross, he didn't get down from the cross and go to the temple and enter into the veil. He didn't enter into the Holy of Holies in that context. So what is the writer of Hebrew mentioning for us? What is he affirming? It is that Christ entered the true veil. He entered into the very presence of God with the blood of his sacrifice. And in doing so, the veil of the temple, which represented the presence of God in the the heavens, was rendered no longer important. And God demonstrated this by tearing the veil when Christ died from the top to the bottom, separating it forever, and taking it completely out of the way, so that we would understand that what Christ has done in entering into the very presence behind the veil, into the very presence of God, is to make a way for us to enter into the presence with Him, and having removed all hindrance and all barrier which separated us from the presence of our God. He went to intercede and to administer grace for His bride. It's an important distinction for us to understand that the blood of Christ is applied to those who have been chosen of God before the foundation of the world. The bride of Christ, the church. Jesus' blood is not spread willy-nilly over the whole of creation so that every person who rebels against God has been forgiven. They only have to accept it. That's not what the scripture teaches us. Because that doesn't actually secure anybody's salvation. It only makes it potentially possible. It also means that if that were true, then those for whom Christ died, there are those in hell for whom Christ died, because not everybody accepts Jesus. What the scripture teaches us is that the blood of Christ is applied to those who God himself has chosen. God himself knew those who were his, and he died specifically for his sheep. He died for those who belonged to him which means that the fullness of everything that Christ did is guaranteed to us if we are found in Christ. There is no potential for failure here. Jesus entered into the very presence of God with the blood of the sacrifice to intercede and to administer grace for his bride. Now, no matter how long I spend trying to explain this, we're never going to fully understand it. You're going to have all of eternity to have the full revelation of not only the presence, but the plan of God. And you're going to need all of eternity and still not get it all. So no matter how hard I try, no matter how good I do, which isn't very, you're never going to fully understand it. Because we cannot understand what is going on there. Scripture, first of all, doesn't fully tell us. But we do know the high points. We know that Jesus entered into the presence of God with His own blood. And offered it before the throne of grace and said, Father, this is the blood of the sacrifice. I have given my life willingly for those whom you gave me. And we know that in the context of that exchange, God guaranteed that he accepted that payment. And he guaranteed it by the empty tomb. He raised Jesus from the dead because he has accepted payment on our behalf And in accepting payment on our behalf, he has canceled the debt which was against us. Paul writes in Colossians that he canceled the debt of of trespasses, taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is mysterious, and this is wondrous, and this is mind-boggling, and this is glorious. But this is also powerful. Because it means then that The teeth that are in the monster behind the veil, the teeth of death, have been pulled. And as far as I've ever understood it, nobody's ever been gummed to death. But the monster's toothless, he has no power, he has no ability to harm us whatsoever but we can know something of what God has done and we can taste of its essence with this thing called hope because God has promised. We get the flavor of it just enough to to, to make us hungry for more. We get the flavor of it just enough to drive us closer in, to cause us to want to understand, to cause us to taste just a little bit more of Him. It's an ineffable thing that you can't quite get your head around and yet it's there. And it never escapes and it never fully goes away. And that hunger and that thirst that it drives in us is always present. It should drive us to the Father. It should drive us to the Word. We can know what we know by faith. So let's come back to the picture of the anchor. A ship's adrift in the sea. There's a great storm. They throw the anchor overboard. Does anybody go down to make sure that it's hitting in bedrock? No? You know if it is because the ship suddenly begins to hold against the storm. Amen? Mm-hmm. If, if it's just dragging in the water, you're going to know that too. So here's the challenge for us. On what do you hope? On what do you rest the anchor of your soul's faith? Is it the promises of God? Does it go all the way to the bedrock? Or is it simply the things that you think you might know? The things that you think you might understand? The things that that some charlatan told you that feel good on the surface but have no substance? Upon what does your anchor hold? Because at the bottom of it all, if it's not anchored in the bedrock of the promises of God, you are still adrift. If your hope is not anchored in Him, then you are still adrift. Because in the end, we have to know Him. We enter into the presence of God with hope as our down payment. God has given us this down payment on faith. That's where it all begins. Somebody will hear the gospel. They will hear the truth of what God has promised. And they will think to themselves, could it be also for me? And they dare to enter into, into this, this reality as God causes life to be born in them. And hope grows into faith. It's, it's sort of faith's fiduciary. It, it makes payment on, the, on behalf of faith. It allows us to know what God really is doing. It allows us to understand what God truly has promised. And it allows us to lay hold of that with power and with purpose and with understanding and be able to say, Lord, I'm going to take you at your word. Which is why Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it is the evidence of things not seen. But we don't get to see it all right now. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8, We were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see, and we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So on what do you base your hope? Well, beloved, understand this. If you base your hope on anything but the sure and certain promise of God contained in Scripture, you have no hope. We base our hope on the rule and measure of the Word of God. Our hope is founded and empowered by the Word of God, and we do not depart from that line, period. We all have imaginations, some more vivid than others. But your imagination is not the anchor of your hope. God may grant to you a vivid imagination by which you can understand some things and see some things in Scripture and start to put some parts together, but at the bottom of it, if it doesn't drive back to the Scripture, it's out of line. It has to drive back to the Word. It has to drive back to the truth of what God has given to us. Because any refusal to believe what God has said in His Word cuts us adrift. And I understand that there are things in the Word that are hard to believe. And I understand that there are things in the Word which to the casual observer might seem harsh. And I understand that there are things in the Word which to the casual observer might seem like God is mean. But we have to take Him at His Word and know what He tells us about Himself and rest everything that we have in the promise contained in His Word. We hold fast to the promise of God. And we cling with all we are to the One who both secures us and who himself is the very promise of God? Jesus Christ is the answer of all of God's promises. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that in him all of the promises are yes and amen to the glory of the Father. We cling to the promises of God and we cling to the Christ who is the promise of God made flesh. But we cling to him because he clings to us first. Never lose sight of the fact that the promises of God are empowered and and enabled and enlivened by His hand on them. They are not just dead words. The very word of God, the very truth of Scripture, it is the power of God because it conveys with it and carries with it the person of God to teach us what He says. We read it this morning in the Catechism. How is it that the Word is made effective? It's by the Holy Spirit speaking these things to our heart and causing us to lay hold of them. It is the person of God conveying Himself to us through the power of His Word that gives us the ability to hope in His promise. And we go all the way into the promises of God, we go all the way to that which is inside the Holy of Holies. And it's not an ark. Although the Ark of Noah and the Ark of the Covenant were both pictures and types of Christ. It's not the Ark of the Covenant any longer that's in the Holy of Holies. It's not a box made of acacia wood and covered with gold with a, with a beautiful picture of angels on top of it covering over the mercy seat. It's not a man-made mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant was made by men. God's blessing was on it. We read this morning about the sanctification of it and the altar. But these things were made by men. And God chose to bless them with his presence and bless them with his power because it was his way of conveying truth to his people by increments. But with Christ entering the Holy of Holies, no longer do we need the man-made representations. We have been welcomed into the very presence of God. We do not go in and look inside the box and find the tablets of stone broken by Moses. We do not look inside the box and find the jar of manna. We do not look inside the box and find the rod of Aaron that budded. Although all three of those things speak to us of Christ. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the very Logos of God. He is the representation of the character of God made flesh. He is the bread from heaven. And of course, the rod of Aaron. Do you ever consider that? Why did that matter? Well, here you've got a dead stick that blooms. It buds. Here is Jesus, slain from the foundation of eternity. And yet he has been granted this authority as high priest because the rod of Aaron that budded signified that God's hand was on Aaron as the high priest of the people. All of these things point to Christ. All of these things give us an insight into who Jesus is, give us an insight into his role, and give us an insight into who God himself is. We enter into the true Holy of Holies. We enter into the place behind the veil by the presence and the person of Christ, and we see on the throne of mercy God. We see on the mercy seat the God himself who not only accepted the sacrifice on our behalf, but the God of mercy ordained it in the first place so often we don't consider that reality we almost tend to look at it from a, a slightly Catholic perception, which says that somehow Jesus and, and Mary and somebody else strong armed God and forced him to accept a sacrifice that he didn't want to and they manipulated the law to somehow do this thing and God's kind of angry about it and I've talked to Christians who ought to know better but they think in that way Beloved, it is God who ordained the truth of this. It was His plan all along. It was His purpose from the very foundation. Before He ever said, let there be light, Christ was ordained as the sacrifice to redeem us. The fall was included in the original plan because it is through falling and being redeemed that we know God as Redeemer. It is through this method that we know Him in the greatest and truest and grandest sense of all. That the love of a redeeming God is worth the loss of all things. And this truth is made known to us as we come to know Him. This truth is made known to us as we enter into the holiest place and we see God upon the throne of grace and we see Jesus Christ, the priest of the church, alive forever. Even after death. Made alive by God the Father. Feeding his people the bread of God. Interceding on their behalf. Revealing the person and the character of the God that he came to deliver us unto. God the Father, as the author and the promise of grace, sits on that throne. Grace, that measure by which God gives us what we do not deserve. Mercy, that measure by which God does not give us what we do. This is the author of grace sitting upon the throne of mercy, sitting upon the seat which says mercy as its name, revealing himself to us despite our sin and our rebellion. We enter into the holiest place and we see Christ, our Redeemer, still alive, interceding on our behalf, as even though we, the people of God, who have no cause to rebel and every cause to obey, continue to walk in sin still Christ intercedes on our behalf. Still He pleads His blood and intercedes that we would be forgiven. Yes, God, my sin covered even that. Yes, Father, even that. He continues to intercede for His people so that we would know the fullness of who this God is, this purchaser of all of our mercy. We enter into the holiest of places And we see in some intangible, ineffable way the display of the covenant of peace that is between them, of which we are beneficiaries. (coughs) Do you understand that the covenant that saves you is not some agreement between you and Jesus? It's not that you said, Yes, Lord, I receive you as Savior, and therefore you will now save me. That's not what saves you. What saves you is the covenant of peace that was established between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit before anything was done. That's the covenant that saves you. That's the covenant that's power is poured out into your life when God calls you to life. You see, you can't make a deal with God because you were dead. And dead people don't do anything. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And when God made you alive, he gave you the covenant that he had already called you into. And he allowed you to sign your name to it by by the acquiescence of your will that he then made alive before he let you sign your name to it. But he did this by his own covenant and his own work and his own mercy. He is the author and the arbiter and the first source of all of your faith and all of your hope. And we see this when we enter into the holiest place. Here our hope rests, and here our anchor holds. And we could go on and on and on like this for days and years and decades and centuries and millennia without end, and we will. And we'll still never get to the bottom of it. It is that deep. And that beautiful. And that powerful. And that profound. This is the presence. Behind the veil. And in entering the presence behind the veil. Christ removed the veil forever. We have passed into the very presence of God. So, so let's look again at Hebrews. I want you to understand what the writer is giving us here in chapter 6 and verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which hope, is what he's talking about, enters the presence behind the veil your hope enters the presence behind the veil because God has welcomed you into his presence as a child of the most high you come into the very presence of God every time you hit your knees every time you pray, every time you open your mouth and say, Oh, Father, please. You stand in the very presence of God. And you do this by the blood of Christ, which purchased that right for you. You do this by the blood of Christ, which not only purchased that right, but which tore asunder that barrier which kept you from it and holds you by the hand and leads you into the presence of God. This hope that we have enters the presence behind the veil and the shadows have passed away. The obscure representations, arcs and censures and all of it. They're gone. Nobody knows what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. It vanished four or five hundred years before Christ. Sometime around the time that Ezekiel tells us he saw the vision of God's glory departing from the temple. The Ark is just gone. And I don't think, despite Indiana Jones' best efforts, we're ever going to find it. Because it no longer is relevant To us. And even if somebody did find the ark. I don't think everybody would melt. When they opened it. Because the ark is irrelevant. To us now. We enter into the presence of God. Where the true mercy seat is. By the blood of the true sacrifice. Which was given for our souls. We enter in. Because Christ fulfilled his purpose. And the threat of our deserved punishment has been banished by the acceptance of God's mercy for the atonement of our sin. Romans 4, verses 23 to 25 says, It was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to us, imputed to Him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Verse 25, Who was delivered because of our offenses. And was raised because of our justification. You see, what Jesus did in being raised from the dead was guarantee that payment has been accepted by God on our behalf. He, he has been raised from the dead, and he stands forever as a priest of God, interceding on behalf of his people. And you need no other mediator, and you need no other intercessor. And it's a good thing that you don't, because there are no others. There is no other mediator. There is nobody else who will ever be able to stand and plead your case before God. No saint, no dear departed loved one, no mother of Jesus, no miniature godlings, nothing. There is Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And please do not take my word for this, but listen to the word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Period. So any prayer offered to anybody but God through Jesus is praying to a false god and it is deplorable and detestable in the sight of God. We deal with God alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone. And that is how we as the people of God function. Without this anchor we die. And death for those apart from Christ does still have teeth. Death for those apart from Christ does still hold terror and should. Without this anchor of hope, without the anchor of Christ, we die. And dying, we are lost forever, separated from God, from love, from happiness, from every good thing, and for all of eternity. But with this hope, with this hope, we live. Though we die, yet shall we live. And the very worst thing that the world can do to us is our greatest joy. For all that the world can do is send us, post-haste, into the presence of God. The Scripture promises us that when we close our eyes on this world, we open them, gazing upon the face of the Beloved. Absent from the body, I will be present with the Lord. And that is my hope. And that is the promise of God, which enters the presence behind the veil and not only makes a way for me to come, but graciously takes me by the hand and leads me there. It is the sovereign work of God. And it is the sovereign mercy of God that defeats death and gives us victory over that which hinders. And for us, we need nothing else. Come what may, whatever fear says is a lie, you need nothing but Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity to understand your truth and clarity to see the heart that has called us unto yourself. I pray, God, that as we leave this place, we would leave with our eyes open to not only behold your glory in our lives, but to see the opportunities that you have placed in front of us to share that glory with others. God, let us never be lax. In the carrying of the name of Jesus, Father, for we seek always to see him exalted. We pray, Lord, that you would grant to us awareness, that we would be aware always of those times that you call us to speak. Give us this grace that Christ would be honored. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.